Hello and welcome to the Berlin Podcast. In this episode, we're thrilled to be celebrating the release of Cassius X, A Legend in the Making, by the broadcaster, journalist and award-winning writer Stuart Cosgrove. Cassius X is the remarkable story of the transformation of Cassius Clay into the global icon Muhammad Ali, set against the dramatic social landscape of racism and segregation, the rise of civil rights, the Mafia's interests in boxing and the upsurge of soul music. In an exclusive interview for the Berlin podcast, Stuart is in conversation with Heath Common, Yorkshire-based journalist and interviewer. Here they are to tell us more. Hi Stuart, it's great to see you again. As a boxing fan myself, I was obviously aware of Cassius Clay and then Cassius Clay changing his name to Muhammad Ali. But even as what I hoped was an informed observer, I never knew he was called Cassius X. So perhaps you can talk us through what happened with Cassius Clay, the transition to Cassius X, and in turn onto Muhammad Ali. What happens to? Well, it's a long, but I think a fascinating story. Uh, young Cassius Marcellus Clay, uh, who was born in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, became uh, a very, very exciting young boxer after having won the Olympic uh, gold medal uh, in the Rome Olympics. Uh, as he was uh, preparing his early journey up through the rankings within heavyweight boxing, he came under the tutelage and leadership of his manager, Angelo Dundee, uh, whose brother, Chris Dundee, owned the Fifth Street Gym in Miami. So Cassius moved home um, from Louisville to Miami and uh, during his period in Miami, where he stayed for uh, up to three years prior to his title fight, he started to become interested really in, in, in two things that were kind of compelling in his life. First of all, he was a witness to the emergence of the new form of black music that became known as soul music. And secondly, uh, he met a, a gentleman by the name of Sam Saxon, who introduced him to a mosque in Miami, uh, and began his, uh, uh, his conversion to the Nation of Islam. Now, within the context of the Nation of Islam, one of the first requirements of your journey to full membership is that you eradicate or cancel your slave name. His slave name had obviously been uh, Clay. Uh, and so uh, he took on, uh, quietly and unobtrusively at first, uh, the name X, which is the cancellation name, as in Malcolm X. Uh, however, uh, during that period, he'd had a lot of kind of self-doubt um, about this move, in part because the original Cassius Clay, who was effectively the slave owner, had been one of the most radical abolitionists in the history of the slave trade, one of the first people to give up his slaves and then spent his time campaigning against slavery, uh, running a, a printing press, printing anti-slavery literature. And to some extent, young Cassius Clay had become not only comfortable with his name, but actually quite proud of his name. And so the, the test of giving it up and becoming Cassius X uh, was a, a, an ideological struggle for him. But eventually he did it, and it was only after he became heavyweight champion of the world in February 1964 that eventually the Nation of Islam gave him his full uh, uh, ingratiated name, Muhammad Ali. The book is really about the period of time when he's living uh, surreptitiously as Cassius X. Right, right. Now, let me ask you this. You just made reference to Malcolm X. And I found 
your book very challenging to me over so many assumptions, presumptions I'd had in the past, one of which was that Malcolm X was good for Muhammad Ali. And now I'm not so sure he was. Was Malcolm X, in your opinion, good for Muhammad Ali, generally speaking, or was he a pariah? But certainly Muhammad Ali's father would have seen him as such. Well, Muhammad Ali's father was not at all uh, keen on his son's conversion to Islam. And in actual fact, he had come from a very different African-American tradition uh, and was clearly, uh, as with the mother, uh, a, a committed Christian. And yeah. so there's a lot of doubt there about uh, if shifting their kind of faith. But Malcolm X was complex in another way. He was probably the most charismatic, the most famous, and certainly the most, um, you know, firebrand of the uh, great speakers of the African-American cause. And unlike Martin Luther King, uh, was someone that advocated not just simply violence, but a more activist sense of claiming of, uh, of rights with an African-American experience. Now, whether he was good or bad for Cassius Clay, I think he was good in as much as he gave even greater visibility to someone who was already visible and was increasingly becoming more famous. So at the level of charisma and fame, um, I think that he was very good for Cassius. In terms of bringing Cassius into the middle of what was an ugly and internecine war within the nation of Islam, uh, I think that was difficult. And, and in the end, Cassius made the decision, a decision he had to live with, that he was going to side with the established leadership of the nation of Islam and to some extent betray Malcolm X, yeah. who, as you know, was assassinated in 1965. They had seen each other for the last time on a tour of Ghana when they were off on an African independence uh, tour. And Cassius had effectively blanked uh, Malcolm X when they saw each other. And yeah. it's something that he since said was the greatest regret of his life because it looked yeah. as if he was simply betraying an old friend. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Now, in turn, do you think that Malcolm X was a bit of a hustler? Because he strikes me as coming across as a bit of a hustler in the book. I'm thinking, for example, his behaviour in the fight camp in Miami. When he turns up, really... He's almost riding in on the back of Cassius Clay's newfound fame and trying to make something of a profile for himself. Do you think he was still a bit of a hustler? I think that he would probably be the first to uh, put up his hand and admit that uh, as a street hustler and as a criminal, when he was a teenager growing up in uh, Lansing in Michigan and then moving to Boston and to Harlem, he, he would probably be one of the first to admit that he had a kind of hustler's instinct. He yeah. was nicknamed Detroit Red, he was a street criminal, but he had this amazing charismatic capacity to be a great talker, a great... And I think, you know, uh, to be fair to him, I think one of the things that he did and what maybe you may be kind of picking up here, I think that all of that generation, including Malcolm X, including Cassius, including Sam Cooke, who's a huge influence on, on them, I think they'd all understood that fame was, was something that was actually important in life, visibility, fame, even notoriety. The, the, the idea that you were being noticed was an important part of how they developed themselves. And, you know, he was a great thinker. He was a brilliant, brilliant speaker. And I think in many respects, he gave 
Cassius X, a, a great kind of influence as a mentor. But previous biographies have tended to imagine that he was a person that converted Cassius, but that was far from true. He met Cassius in Detroit for the first time in 1962. And whilst they remained close, Malcolm X became more and more interested in him as Cassius's fame grew. So there was an element of the kind of opportunism about that, but he was also a significant figure in his own right. Yeah. Right, let's move on. One of the many, many great strengths of the book for me was the way it identifies clear parallels between the rise of Cassius Clay in the sporting and the commercial worlds and the rise of the civil rights movement. Well, yes, um, obviously civil rights movement had been something that was kind of um, in Cassius's life since birth. He grew up in Louisville, Kentucky in a black family, went to a high school that was uh, predominantly African-American at Central High School in Louisville. And he was someone that had witnessed uh, close up uh, the changes that were coming into uh, many of the southern and mid-southern states in America around desegregation. Um, and even when he moved to Florida, when he was training in Miami, uh, a campaign that's maybe not the most visible in the civil rights campaign was growing up, and that was the move to desegregate beaches uh, and swimming pools and hotels. And that part of the civil rights campaign was something he really witnessed close, close up. There's a very, very famous uh, jazz instrumental by uh, Ramsey Lewis called Wade in the Water. I mean, a big, 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 big record. And uh, that um, instrumental was actually derived from a campaign of the Florida civil rights movement where there were a lot of segregated beaches and areas of hotels that young black people couldn't enter. Uh, And so they came up with this campaign to declare a day when they would wade in the water and they would simply turn up maybe a hundred of them and go into the pool and say, hey, kick us out, we're here, you know. And it was a great kind of campaign because it was non-violent, it was very visible, uh, and of course it bequeathed some great soul music as well. And you know, Cassius was not only aware of that, he, he was, he was a, a witness to it, he participated in some kind of campaigns, but I think that the thing about him that, uh, remains really important in the book, is the book really is a prequel to the trilogy of books I've written about the late 60s, in as much as we see Cassius as a very young man, just as soul music is emerging out of gospel, and just as the big radio stations and R&B DJs are becoming hugely influential. So in lots of ways, uh, is Cassius X witnessing the first days of soul. Another great theme emerging from the book and another theme where I was thinking, you know, I'm not, I thought I knew a lot about Muhammad Ali, about Cassius Clay, but I never appreciated this, is the rise of Cassius Clay in terms of challenging the control of the Mafia. Yes. The Mafia had this iron grip on boxing pre the era of Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. But what comes across to me in the book, and this is what I'm asking you to speak about in a moment, Stuart, is that Ali and indeed his faith movement came to say, no, we're not taking this anymore. We will stand up and fight this from here on in. Yeah, I mean, boxing's always had this kind of notoriety around organized crime. And when Cassius was fighting for the heavyweight title against the legendary and the notorious Sonny Liston, um, he was in effect also fighting a fight 
that was about uh, defeating criminality within the sport. Now, removing criminality from boxing is never going to happen. But at this time, the mafia, the Italian-American mafia, uh, had a, a grip particularly on the middleweights and the welterweight divisions dating back to the 1940s. So you're looking here at 20, 30 years nearly of unchallenged control of fighters, of managers, of titles, of the gyms, a whole range of them. Uh, and I focus on two of the most powerful mafia figures in the book. Um, one's a guy called Frankie Carbo uh, yeah. and another one called Blinky Palermo. And Blinky Palermo is the Philadelphia match fixer who comes uh, into uh, effect because he actually is also controls Liston's um, fights. Now, the reason that a mafia figure could control a fight is they determine ultimately who is going to hold on to the title and who is going to concede it, who's going to win the match, who's not going to win it, how quickly they're going to win it, how, how long someone can hold on. So they can bet on the rounds something happened, they can bet on the outcome of the game. And it was corrupt and, and actually quite ugly. And lots of good fighters lost their livelihood as a consequence. I think one of the great things, there's a tendency to be skeptical of the Nation of Islam and of uh, Cassius X's journey towards the Nation of uh, Islam. But the one thing that they had was they had a kind of fearless activist belief that they could take on the mafia. And the idea that they would take his contract and say, no, 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 we call the shots here. No longer, your days are over. That's mm -hmm. for me, one of the kind of powers that they gave Cassius that maybe even his previous managers couldn't. Yeah, right. Let's move on to a figure that you've mentioned twice in the last minute, Sonny Liston. Because the, the number, I mean, I read the book in a single day because it's so fascinating and so engaging. But the number of times during the reading of the book that I thought, you know, I'm going to ask him about this. Because I thought, I just thought Liston was a throwaway, big bear of a bloke who was your typical psycho operating in the ring. But the more I read about what you'd perceived in him, I thought, this is quite an intelligent, reflective guy. And he's nothing like the popular image that everybody was sold. You know, it's, it's one of the things I always kind of reach out to try and do, Heath, and that's that if a character is going to be substantial in a book that you're writing, either the, the primary character or one of the kind of secondary influential characters, I think as a writer, you're duty-bound to give them complexity. No one is simple. We're all a mix of different kind of tendencies, Absolutely. attitudes, values, experiences. And um, Sonny, Charles Sonny Liston was a hugely complex man. I mean, clearly he was the 24th, I think, of 25 children in, yeah. in a brutal uh, marriage, in yeah. dark poverty, in segregated parts of the United States, a time when the hopes for young black men were that they would avoid being lynched and they might be able to make it to a city and get a low-level job. He, he made it to St. Louis in Missouri, where he became a, a bit of a street criminal. And it was only when he went to reformatory and then penitentiary that he was uh, trained to become a boxer. Now, Sonny Liston was one of the most fearless uh, heavyweights ever. I mean, for a period of time in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, he had an unbroken run in the heavyweight title uh, and the category that he fought in made him the most feared fighter probably of the era. Much, much more intimidating than Cassius X could ever imagine. 
Yeah. Uh, and so in a way, uh, they had to try in Cassius's camp to try and get inside his head, to try and find out a way that they could beat Sonny Liston. Uh, how could they unpick his personality? How could they psych him out? How could they use kind of uh, psychology against him, humiliating him, demeaning him? But you know what? Here's a scary thing that a lot of people don't give credit for, is Sonny Liston had a relatively high IQ by comparison with his age group. He was a man that was, in lots of ways, I see things in him that make me uh, kind of appreciate him more than I'd ever done until I got into the research. He was actually a man that was quite a lonely man, quite a solitary man. He didn't surround, although he was uh, effectively controlled by mafia captains, he wasn't someone that was a big kind of, you know, he wasn't in pool halls all the time. He wasn't the big talker. He wasn't a big mouth. He wasn't someone who would spend his time in bars, you know, buying drinks for people. He wasn't that kind of personality. He's quite a lonely man, quite a, a loner. And a man that was actually quite interested in, in reading. He, he, um, there's a story that's not in the book, which um, I, I, I should probably have put into the book, but it would have meant jumping forward in time. When Sonny Liston came to fight exhibition matches here in Scotland, he was being led at the time by a fight promoter called Peter Keenan. And Peter Keenan was a well-known kind of Glasgow and West of Scotland boxing fixer and boxing kind of promoter. And he brought Sonny Liston over to do maybe three or four fights. During his visit, Sonny Liston effectively fell in love with Peter Keenan's son, who's called Young Pete. And he tried to convince his promoter to allow him to adopt his son and bring him back to uh, Las Vegas where he was living because his, his own wife uh, couldn't conceive. And he felt that the only way that they could kind of resolve their love for each other was if Sonny Liston could adopt someone. But such was his kind of not notoriety and criminal record in America. There was no hope of him ever being allowed to adopt. So he tried to adopt this wee Scottish boy who, who wasn't even available to be adopted. But he did, for a period of time, take him out to St. Louis. And I know from the, the man himself, he spent two consecutive Christmases with Sonny Liston, actually living in the house almost as his surrogate son. Now, you don't do that if you're the big, mouthy, criminal art man. You mm -hmm. do it because deep down you have emotional needs, you know. And I found him a really fascinating character. Yeah. You know what really touched my heart about him was his fascination with Jimmy Forrester's night train. Yes. And, I mean, that is, I know um, our lead thought there was touches of evil in that track too. Yeah. But that track has always fascinated me for much the same reason. I, I see some sort of unsteadiness, not evil, yeah. unsteadiness in the track. And I'm sure Liston perceived the same sort of thing because he was almost... Can I use the word obsessed there? Yeah. Obsessed with the track. Do you want to say something about well, it? Well, he, he, not only was he obsessed with the track, there's a way where the track was almost his signature tune. It yeah. kind of energised him. He would play it 10, 15, 20 times during his uh, training sessions. It gave him adrenaline rush. It got him up. It lifted his spirits. Uh, and in lots of ways, if you kind of look at it, it, it also goes back to his own... Uh, youth as a kind of a street criminal in St. Louis because um, the musician, Jimmy Forrest, who originated it, uh, played in a bar near the area that 
Sonny Liston hung out. So he kind of knew Jimmy Forrest, not well, but he knew him at a distance as the musician. By the time he goes into jail, Night Train goes to number one in the kind of R&B charts. And as he's listening to his transistor radio in jail, he's thinking, this is my song. And it became literally the song uh, of his um, success. He, he would come out to it, he would train to it. Uh, and it's got, as you say, that reckless, almost like a runaway train. It's got this momentum, it's got this power, it's got this, uh, and of course, it's very much about the kind of the mystery of the night train. Uh, and then when it was recorded by James Brown in the early 60s, it became a huge R&B hit. Uh, and in some respects, there's a bit of Cassius that was slightly frightened of the song. He kind of thought, oh, this song comes with things I don't want to deal with, you know? Which in turn brings us on to a subject which, yeah, I will say, obsesses you and I, yeah. the subject of music. Um, and I'll invite you to say something about the parallel between the rise of Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, Cassius X, and the rise of soul music. Because by goodness me, I think you capture that perfectly in the book. Yeah, well, uh, look, you know, the, the book is effectively uh, using uh, Cassius's young life as someone who was there and who was fascinated by the music. Uh, and to some extent, he acts as a very interesting witness to the music for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, he befriended quite early in his time in Miami, the great Sam Cooke. And Sam Cooke was, of course, at his height, not only as a recording artist, but also as someone that owned his own label. He ran SAR Records, it was a Los Angeles-based label. For his own uh, career, he was signed to RCA. But it was Sam Cooke, through his relationship with Cassius, who started to convince Cassius that you had to take control of the ownership of your own contracts, your own life, your own uh, who you signed for, how much you were willing to appear for. He started to explain to him things like what appearances fees were. Now, most young boxers were pretty much told what to do by their manager or by their trainer. Uh, Cassius started to assemble a very, very clever working knowledge of how the media and the industry worked. Yeah. Sam Cooke, of course, encouraged him to sign uh, a deal with Columbia, and he brought out an album, I Am The Greatest, which came out in late 63. And that album was, of course, uh, his big uh, commitment. But he recorded it in New York, and as part of the promotion for it, the Gonzo journalist Tom Wolfe interviewed Cassius and he said that Cassius spent his time throughout the interview saying things like how much do they pay you for a feature what yeah. if you wrote 5,000 words what money would you get and yeah. they were driving up to a photo session through the brownstones of um, the Upper East Side of New York and Cassius kept pointing to various brownstones saying three stories how much is that currently selling for and he was obsessed with New York real estate that he claimed he was teaching himself. So here was a man that fully understood the way the media worked, the way that soul music was evolving, because his girlfriend, Dee Dee Sharp, was a kind of dance craze singer who sang along with Chubby Checker, did Twist Craze Records, Mashed Potato USA, all sorts of records like that. And uh, Cassie's kind of learned about how her business worked and the role of network television and how that was important in promoting yourself. And he became a very popular host on late night chat shows, which is for me, 
you know, as a young boy growing up in Scotland, that's how I first came across this guy. Mm -hmm. Who's this guy that's sitting there talking to Harry Carpenter? Then he's talking to, you know, uh, endless numbers of kind of chat show hosts, and he was blowing them away with all of this shtick, this kind of magic, these rhyming couplets, this, you know, quite sometimes quite aggressive self-aggrandizing. It was incredible. It's like you were watching the first ever rapper, you know. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So, as we drive towards the conclusion of this uh, chat together, Stuart, I wonder if you share my perception, and this is a considered perception on my part, that Ali was perhaps the greatest human that ever lived. Or do you think that perception, which is shared by a great many people, I'm sure you concede, whether that is a little forced and a little inappropriate, where do you stand on Muhammad Ali as we look back? I, I think that he was um, both uh, shaped by and was a victim of the time that he came to his prime. I mean, there are very, very, very few people that can have their careers taken off them at the absolute height of their ability to earn a living and become reliant on gifts from friends and charitable handouts. And when he stood against the war in Vietnam, it was a stance that was truly, truly self-denying. You know, it, he knew... Uh, he was already being stopped by the FBI, and he knew that if he refused to go in the draft and remain loyal to the Nation of Islam's thinking about the war, that he would actually lose his title. And he decided to make that choice. So, self-denying ordinance, walking away from that level of finance and fame that he had at that time, unbelievable, remarkable thing to do. Uh, leading off in the Vietnam anti-war protests for, for two or three years, making himself hugely unpopular with mainstream thinking in America. Yeah. Uh, you have to respect that. Whether he's the greatest in terms of kind of his behavior, you could maybe look to other things. Was he the most kind of loyal husband? Possibly not. Uh, would he regret the fact that he turned his back on Malcolm X, one of his mentors? Yes, almost certainly. Um, was he closer to really, really, really violent men who had great kind of control uh, over their flock? Then yes, definitely he was that. And so for a whole range of reasons, there were flaws to Cassius. To some extent, a lot of people felt that his kind of poetry and his, his shtick became a wee bit overbearing at times. And he thought, he was one of these guys, he's one of these guys that love tricks, you know? And I think if you're a, a child, the idea that a man can come along and make a nickel coin appear behind your ear yeah. and, and do stuff like that, close-up magic, little silly tricks, he was hugely loved. He was in the area in Overtown in Miami where he was living when he was, uh, when the books focused, he was like a Pied Piper. Kids just flocked around him followed him wherever he went. There was always razzmatazz around him. Um, and some people love that. And other people, like, for example, Sonny Liston, thought he was a show-off, thought yeah. he was a big mouth. Um, and those, of course, are flaws in most people's eyes rather than virtues. So I'm going to go most of the way with you, and I'm going to give him a solid 92%. <laughs> well, that allows me, Stuart, to thank you for your time today. And perhaps more importantly, to thank you for yet another superb book, which has given me so much pleasure. As I say, I read it in a single sitting, and I know this book, yet again, 
will give so many other people enormous pleasure. You're a great bloke, mate, and thanks for everything you do. Well, thank you very much indeed, Heath. An absolute pleasure. <laughs> thanks very much to Stuart Cosgrove and Heath Common for taking their time to record that fascinating interview exclusively for the Berlin podcast. Cassius X, A Legend in the Making, is published by Polygon, an imprint of Berlin, and is now available to buy from your local bookshop. It's also available at www.berlin.co.uk.